Good evening. My name is Pastor Brooks. I'm a lead pastor of Grace Community Church and a tender and worshiper here with my wife, Stacy, in the downtown campus. Thank you for choosing to worship with us here tonight. We're continuing in this series on what it looks like to, to love well. And we're using an acronym, BLESS. We begin with prayer. Then while it's listening, last week we talked about eating. And, and today we're, we're on serving. But the scripture that was just read, um, Jesus is is redefining for his disciples their understanding of greatness. Um, confession, and I don't know if it's a confession so much as a reality. It's not like it's sin or anything. But So when I grew up as a kid, um, I don't know, sometime about maybe 12, uh, 11, 12, certainly my early teen years, I, I started to desire to be really good at something, anything. Uh, started out, I would just try to be funny. I'd be the comedian, the class clown. I just wanted to, I wanted to be noticed and good at something. Good at something. Sports was an avenue that I chose. I just wanted to be, I wanted to be the best at anything. And it was either football or wrestling. And I think probably at a, at a younger age and even in a young adult life, my motives were, you know, fairly narcissistic. In, in some ways, just wanting to be noticed. Some of them weren't necessarily narcissism so much as I just wanted, I wanted to matter. And, and, and here's the thing, while that sounds maybe kind of self-centered, there is a sense, there is a sense in which God is hardwired into each and every single one of us a desire to be great. Why? Because we're image bearers and we reflect the glory of a great God. So in one sense, being, having a sense of significance and a sense of purpose and being great is holy, righteous, and good. Now, the fall skews all of that. The fall skews all of that. And what we've, what we've seen in the scripture that Olivia just read there is the disciples wrestling with the desire to be great, and Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, no, 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 you shouldn't want to be great. He just says, no, no, you don't understand what greatness is. You don't understand what greatness is. So let's take a look at this, at this scripture here. We're on uh, number four here, the serve section here. And so the, the, context, the context is you have a mom, super awkward. The mom here, uh, sons of Zebedee, comes to Jesus with her sons and kneels before him and asks him for something. And Jesus says to her, well, what do you want? And she says to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, most of you are at the age right now where your mom is just awkward, right? So how many of you are just dying inside right now? If, if you're James and you're John and your mother, she's probably in her 50s or late 40s, and she comes up to Jesus and she drops this, you're probably just crawling out of your skin. Or James and John actually want what she wants. Now, Mark records this as James and John coming to Jesus. They don't, Mark doesn't even mention the mom. So this is really a trio here. They're, they're, they're trying to come alongside Jesus. And you look at that at first glance and you say, what gall? What gall? I mean, who does this? Now, it's easy to cast stones at the disciples, but I want you to rewind the tape to Matthew chapter 19. Take a look at Matthew chapter 19, and let's just see uh, what, uh, what Jesus says just prior to this request. 
Verse 28, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So what did he just tell them? You 12 are going to sit on 12 thrones and you're going to rule with me. All the mom here wants is, well, could they sit next to you as they rule? So this is in total keeping with Jesus' promise. So he has to help her understand and help them and help us understand what true greatness is. She says, he's, say these two sons are sit at my, your right hand and one at your left. And Jesus answers, verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant with the two brothers. They're angry. See, their understanding of greatness is totally different than Jesus. Let's take a look. Now, this is a scripture that Olivia read here. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, this is important. Jesus is not rebuking them for a desire to be great. He's helping them understand what true greatness is. Now, the world has an understanding of greatness, and the world's understanding of greatness is, let me be first, let me have the most power, the most money, let me be ahead of and better than everyone else. That's the world's definition of greatness. Let me be the first one to cross the finish line. That's what it means to be great in the world's eyes. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not what it means to be great. What it means to be great is to help as many people across the finish line. That's what it means to be great. So the desire to be great is good, it's God-honoring, but our understanding of what greatness is is absolutely crucial. So what we're going to look at, greatness is associated with service. To become the least of these and the servant of all is the measurement of greatness. So that's what we're going to look at. The serving component is to seek the good of others. We've talked about the beginning of the series, we want to love well. And to love well, the definition of love means to seek the good of another or other people. To seek the good of other people means that we're seeking to see how, what do they need? How can I serve them? If we're going to seek the good of others, service is implied. It's, it's, it's absolutely crucial. So four things. First of all, the example of Jesus. We're going to take a look at Jesus' example. Secondly, we're going to take a look at why do we serve? Motive is absolutely crucial here. We can serve all day long and serve the poor and serve all sorts of people and get it wrong because of the motive. So what's the motive? And then third, who do we serve? Who are the objects of our love? Who do we serve? And then fourth, fourth, how? What manner do we serve? And then we're going to come back to the second point and we're going to end with why again. We're going to kind of bookend it because we'll forget by the end of the service why we're serving if we don't come back around to the why. So let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. Jesus, thank you that you have served us and served the world by giving your life as a ransom for many. Help us to see that in this text that we're gonna be looking at. Jesus, help us to believe and to act on our beliefs 
that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that you are the forgiver of sin and the giver of gifts, Lord. Help us to use the gifts you've given us, Lord, and, and to, to bring glory to you. Lord, help us to understand greatness and to seek after that greatness through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's take a look, first of all, at Jesus' example. So if you have your Bibles, turn in them to John. I'm going to read the first two verses. The first two verses are not on the PowerPoint. Let me set you up the context here. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, that begs a question. Is John talking about the example of love that he's going to show them immediately by washing their feet? Or is he referring to the example of love in which he is going to show them in less than 24 hours when he goes to the cross? Yes. It's not an either or. It's a both and. This is a tangible expression of love immediately that we're going to see, which foreshadows an even greater demonstration of love within the next 24 hours when Jesus is speaking these words. So let's take a look. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So, this is the beginning of a meal, beginning of a meal. And last week we talked about, uh, Pastor Jason talked about eating. How many of you within the last, we'll say month, the last month, you have either exercised the gift and the practice of hospitality or you have been exercised by someone else with their gift of, of hospitality? How many of you have done that? You've had a meal with someone else. Good, good. We're practicing what we preach. Now, the, when you went to this meal or you had guests over to this meal, how many of you, upon their entry into your home, took their shoes off and you cleaned the toe jam out from between their toes before they ate? How many? Not, a, there's one, the Blackleys, because your brothers have toe jam. That is correct, isn't it? Dolly could testify to this. So we have one, so that's good. But you understand that this is typically not something Americans do. And there's a reason for that. We don't have open sewage in our streets. They did. In the first century, they didn't have underground sewage. People would just take their sewage and they would toss it out the window. So when people would walk out in the streets in the public square, the public venue, it was literally filthy. It wasn't just dusty, it was disgusting. So when someone would come to dinner, it was customary to have a water basin where they at least could clean their feet off for themselves. If someone else did it, that service was delegated to someone on the lowest place in the social strata, a slave, a servant. But the, but the keeper of the house, the, the nobility, would never stoop to wash someone's feet. You may ask them to wash their own feet, you wouldn't wash their feet for them. Now, Jesus breaks protocol here, and he stoops to wash his own disciples' feet. Now, I won't show you the scripture, but in verse 6, what does Peter do? If you're familiar with the story, how do, Peter's like, no, 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 may it never be. You shall not wash my feet. Of course, Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Peter, being Peter, responds with, well, then not just my feet, but wash me from head to toe. Jesus said, Pete, relax. You're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Okay, and then he goes on. So, so, and then he washes all of their feet, one by one, including Judas, who is going to betray him. 
He washes their feet. And we pick it up in verse 15. He says to them, For I have given you an example. I have given you an example that you all show should do just as I have done to you. Now, if you come from the Kelowna area or a Mennonite community, they still do this in their churches during worship services as a common thing. Now, it could mean that, that Jesus wants us to literally wash one another's feet, or it probably most likely means that we are to do menial acts of service which bless people. So follow my lead here. Whatever needs done in the service of your fellow man, do it. Do it. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And now let's pray and go. Not quite. So we have the example. We're supposed to do what Jesus did. WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, he would wash people's feet. He would serve. So let's go serve. We better deal with the why and the who and the how before we go out and start washing people's feet. Why? What's the motive? So I want you to think about, I want you to think about the last time you served in any capacity. Any, we have people downstairs which are serving by watching the children and ministering to them. So we could ask them, what's your motive today? If you served earlier today, maybe in the North Liberty campus, what was your motive? If you served someone this week, maybe a neighbor, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a sibling, a roommate, maybe someone you work with, you served them, you did something for them that blessed them, why did you do it? Why did you do it? Why do we serve? Motive matters. Motive matters. Now we're going to take a look at some motives which are pretty common, but they're not helpful. They're not helpful. These kind of motives don't lift us up to greatness in the sense that we are clearly reflecting the image of God, but rather they take us down post-fall and they, they reflect our base nature, our selfishness. So the first motive, which isn't particularly helpful, is a love for self. Now there's two different ways that we can serve out of a love for self. The first is quid pro quo. In other words, there's strings attached. I'll serve you. I'll serve you, if this is my motive, strings attached, I'll serve you only because I expect my service to put you in my debt somehow so that you'll have to serve me later on. This is why Jesus had told his disciples earlier, hey, when you have a dinner party, don't invite your friends. Now, let's just pause. Is Jesus giving us an absolute command that we should never invite our friends and family over for dinner? No, that's not even possible. What he's saying is, don't fall into the quid pro quo motive for inviting people over. Don't invite the popular in the sense that if I get close to this person and I, and I invite them to my home, maybe they'll invite. It's called networking. This is what networkers do. Well, here's my card. Let's have coffee. I'll do something for you in the hopes that I can get you in my debt and later you'll be able to do something for me. Now, that, that works in a, in a society where we, where we need things and other people need our services, but, but the motive here is purely, well, I'm going to serve them so later they can serve me. Here the motive is strictly selfish. It gets things done. It gets things done. But those who can't serve you will never be served. The least of these are left out of the equation because they have nothing to offer. 
They have nothing to offer if this is our motive. If this is our motive. So there's quid pro quo, a love for self. There's also a related type of love for self, which is a little bit different. And this one is, uh, no, there it is, Instagram. It's not strings attached, it's selfie attached. This, this motive is, I feel good about myself. I want everyone to notice. I want everyone to notice that I'm serving. I don't necessarily expect someone to do something for me, but I want to be noticed for my service And it makes me feel good when others see me serve. I I actually wrote this and then realized I've done this. I have have put a picture on Facebook years ago. Uh, I had a team of people that went from Grace, including my family, to South Africa. And we served and and did uh, um, vacation Bible schools in in the... uh, uh, in the townships outside Johannesburg in South Africa. And, you know, you're serving with all these little kids, all these little poor kids, and they all gather around you. It's like... And I put that on Facebook, and I just want to vomit now that I remember back. Not, and by the way, it's not wrong to post your pictures on Facebook as you serve other people, but it's like, ooh, yeah, that's literally what I did. Selfies attached. Now, that hopefully wasn't my motive, but it could have been my motive for sharing that. And what does Jesus say? If you do something for the approval of others, you have your what? You've, you, there's your reward right there. All the like buttons. Like, like, like. And all the shares. That's your reward. So that could be a reward, but that, that doesn't lead to greatness. That doesn't lead to greatness. There's another uh, motive which is not necessarily healthy. Now, this one is tricky because you look at these and say, well, wait a minute. How could love for mission be a bad thing? By the way, Loving yourself is not necessarily bad. Loving your mission is not bad either. When you love your mission and you love yourself above all else, it becomes an inordinate love. So love for mission, what do I mean? The cause, what's the cause? Whatever the cause is, whatever your mission is. If that's the motive, if feeding the hungry for the sake of feeding the hungry is your motive, it's misplaced. Or, or leading someone to Jesus, we're to make disciples. Who make disciples, right? That's what the Great Commission is. And you can't make disciples unless you tell somebody about Jesus. So you want to see them come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That's what, that's what we want. And if that's what drives us, that's love for mission. You say, well, how could that be wrong? Here's why it's wrong. When that person shows no interest in the gospel, you drop them like a hot potato. And they find out very quickly that they are nothing more than a project to you. If the motive is the mission, if the motive is the mission and they show no interest and you can't help them, you you back off, you're done, and they see it. John chapter 13. Jesus washed the 12 apostles' feet and he did not wash Judas' feet as a means to an end to get him to follow him. He knew that those clean feet were going to leave that room, receive 30 pieces of silver, and then bring back soldiers for his arrest. Judas was not a project. He was a man created in the image of Jesus' father, and Jesus loved him because his motive was not his mission to get Judas saved. 
His motive was the love of the Father. And there was a mission involved. But do you see the subtle difference? So love for the mission is not helpful. So that leaves us with love for God. And that's good, maybe. And I say the love of God here. Not love for God, but the love of God. There's two different perspectives. One is toxic. And one is fruitful. And sometimes it's hard to know which one we're talking about or which one we're actually operating under a sense of compulsion that drives us. So what do I mean by love of God? Well, some people serve in order to earn the love of God. In other words, I don't have the love of God. I question whether God approves of me and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z in order to gain his favor so that he will love me. So I serve for the love of God in the hopes that I will get the love of God. Does it make sense? Here's the problem with that. A, how do you know when you've served enough? At what point in time Will you have assurance that now God really loves me? I've done enough. Here's what's going to happen. You're always going to live with a cloud of doubt over your head that you've ever done enough. Or worse, you'll be convinced that you have. And you will look at your own righteousness and you will say, well, God loves me. On what basis? Well, because of all that I've done. And you will become just like a Pharisee. To serve for the love of God in the hopes that I will gain the love of God is legalism. It's the law. It leads to bondage. It leads to all things which are, which are not good. Which are not good. Now, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume, and I mean this is a bad assumption, but most of you probably are at least familiar with, with what we refer to as the gospel. In other words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever what? Believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. So the basis of God's love is is to receive it by faith. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, it is by grace through faith that you have been saved, not by works so that no one can boast, right? So we know this, we're justified by faith. We're declared not guilty by faith. We're declared righteous by faith. It's, it's, it's the free gift. It's the free gift. So we, we, we know this, right? Or do we? We know it here. We know it here. But let me ask you this. After a bad week of failure, you didn't serve. You served yourself, but you didn't serve others. You know God technically has to love you because he said he does. But do you feel like he likes you at that moment? How many of you have times where you know God has to love you because he said so, but you're pretty sure he's not really liking you in the moment? Anybody been there? You're still in point number one. You're not convinced that his love for you has nothing to do with your service for him. So your confessional theology is different from your functional theology. I've been there. I wax and wane. So this isn't simply a matter of, oh, yeah, I know, justification by faith. It's not by works. 
I'm talking to people who know they are justified by faith and yet they still struggle with it. In other words, they're not convinced that the basis of God's love is separate from their serving him. So that's toxic. That will lead to nothing good. So let's take a look at the love of God that is good. I serve in response to the love of God. It is the love of God which actually compels me to service. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse Chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels me. He's already received the love of Christ, and that's the fuel that pushes him into service. He's not serving so he can get it. He's serving because he's got it. That's crucial that we understand the distinction. Crucial that we understand the distinction. Let's take a look here. Why do we serve? We serve because it's worship. Our service is worship. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, on the basis of God's mercies. In other words, parenthetically, see chapters 1 through 11 on the gospel. I appeal to you on the basis of the love of God, tangibly expressed by the sacrifice, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I appeal to you on that basis, the love of God, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now that's how the ESV translates this. The NIV translates it, this is your reasonable act of service. That word worship can be translated interchangeably with service. It means stuff you do for God. Service, worship. So I thought worship is what we do in the three songs when Bo plays the keyboards here. Well, that's part of worship, but that's a very, very narrow thing that we do. That's called praise. We are worshiping God through praise. But the individuals that are downstairs taking care of the kiddos, they're worshiping. And, and individuals that are, are working at the university, if they're, if they're in Christ and they're serving and they're teaching or they're doing research, they're worshiping there. Moms that are changing or dads that are changing diapers in the middle of the night, they're worshiping as they're serving. When you mow your neighbor's lawn, you're worshiping as you serve them. Anything you do is an act of worship if it's done for the glory of God. One more verse before we move on here. This is such an important verse. We have to see it. It it pertains to our motive Jason mentioned it in the video indirectly. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ. That's what Jason mentioned in the video. We have the mind of Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The basis for our service is that Christ has first served us. That's the motive. The love of God already received through the person, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Okay, let's move on here. So, who do we serve? 
Who do we serve? Well, we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we serve the Lord, right? But we're also supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. So we serve our neighbor. Well, who's our neighbor? That question is immediately asked, and Jesus says it's the wrong question. And that's why we get the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I'm not going to go through in detail, but the summary, Jesus says, which of these three, the Levite, the priest, or the Samaritan, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And they said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, there you go. Go and do likewise. In other words, we seek to be the neighbor. We don't ask the question, who's my neighbor? Who's our neighbor? Whoever has a need. Anyone who has a need and we're in a position to meet that need, they are our neighbor. That could be our spouse. That could be our kids. That could be our roommate. That could be the people we work with. Could be the people that we go to class with. It could, it could, be, could be our enemies, people that loathe us. It's whoever has a need. Whoever has a need. So practically, on a practical matter, start with the people that are in your nearest vicinity. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. The people that you commune with. The people that you spend the most time with. This also includes where you work. We often overlook this. You say, well, wait a minute. If I'm at work, my motive for being at work is I draw a paycheck. Yeah, that's true, but you know, you can serve people in the midst of drawing a paycheck who are created in the image and likeness of God and bring glory to God as you serve. You can do that. There's too many people that have this attitude, myself included, when I'm working on my home and I'm doing a home project like drywalling or I'm framing up some walls or I'm doing plumbing and I get to the point where it's not as good as it could be or even should be, and I'll make comments with whoever I'm working with, and I'll say this, well, it's good enough for who it's for. Or how many of you ever heard this? It's good enough for government work. Have anybody ever heard that? Okay. What does that mean? It means that I'm going to stop with the excellence right now because of who I am serving. Well, that's the problem. Who are we serving? Ultimately, our service, our service isn't our neighbor. Our service is the Lord. This is the how do we serve. It moves beyond who to how. Paul says in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father through him. Everything we do is a pretty wide umbrella. That means everything we do. And that's why I'm including your vocation if you're not in ministry. That is the place you spend the most time, your most waking hours are, for many of you, in school. And when you're out of school, it will be where you work. So that is the place where you are to serve others with excellence and thereby bringing glory to your Father. You say, well, do I have to share the gospel? Not necessarily. You just have to do what you do well which gives you an opportunity later to share why you do what you do well. Getting ahead of ourselves to next week, the sharing. So do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. All right. So how do we get started? How do we get started? Some of you are like, okay, I'm, I'm all in on the whole becoming great by serving, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Paul in Romans chapter 12, 
verse 3 says, don't consider yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but think of yourself in accordance with sober judgment according to the measure of faith and grace that God has given you. If your gift is serving, serve. If your gift is giving, be generous. If your gift is teaching, then teach well. And he lists a whole bunch of different spiritual gifts. So the point is, it's like, okay, what? It's, it's coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, how have you wired me? What does it begin with? Blessed begins with what? Begin with prayer. That's where we start. Say, okay, Lord, I want to become a servant. I don't know where to start. Show me. Show me how you've wired me. How can I serve? And then what follows begin with prayer? What's next? Listen. Listen to the Lord. When you begin to pray and say, Lord, I want to serve you and I want to serve others, show me. He will show you. He will bring a need to your front door. He will bring a need. He'll make you aware of a need that you'll be able to meet. And then you step out and you meet that need. And you might fail superbly in meeting this need. You might make a total and utter fool of yourself. My first attempts at serving in the body of Christ had to do with teaching junior high kids Sunday school. And I actually swore in the middle of teaching them because I didn't know any better. I was only two years old in the Lord, and I had come from a different type of background than they did. I had to tell the pastor, I swore in front of the kids. It's like, it's okay, Brooks, it's okay. Yeah, but, and I served in the nursery. It's not a gift. I used to teach children's church. It's not a gift. Teaching is a gift, but not with kids. I'm terrified of kids. So there's lots of things that I tried because there was a need and I just showed up and I spill, uh, spilled, I filled a spot. Might have spilled some stuff too, but the point is you, you just, there's a need. Can I meet that need? I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. It starts with prayer. Then it moves to listening. Then it moves to listening. But we need to end with the Why? Because for me, I forget the why as I'm off serving. It's too easy to forget the why. So I want to end with this verse, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Full stop. Don't go any further. Who are you if you're in Christ? What does Paul call you? You're what? You are God's chosen ones. On the basis of what? Why did God choose you? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, he chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world were set. Before you had done anything good, before you had done anything bad, before you had served one single solitary human being, God set his sights on you and he set his love upon you. And you say, why? I don't know. But I know why not. It wasn't because of your service. It was because of his love. You are chosen in Christ because of his love, not your service. And he's not finished yet. What does he say next after he says, chosen ones? He says, you are holy. That means that God plucked you out of the fire and set you apart for his glory and for his 
purpose. And when he sees you, he sees his chosen daughter, he sees his chosen son, and he sees someone who is holy, righteous, and perfect in Christ. And he's not done. And then he says, beloved. On a good day, you think maybe God likes you a little bit. On a bad day, you think that he's disappointed in you. And what the gospel says is that God cherishes you and delights in you. On a bad day. On a bad day. And a good day. And when you know who you are, and when you know how much he loves you, now you're ready to do something. Now you're ready to do something. So have compassionate hearts. Be kind. Be humble. Be meek. Be patient. Bear with one another. And if somebody has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. See, that's the thing about greatness. Until you recognize how much Christ, who is truly great, loves you, you'll never be in a position to serve and love well. Because your motive will always be for some other motive. So if we're going to love well, if we're going to become great, we have to first be served by Christ and receive his love, his free pardon, his free gift of righteousness. And then live in light of that as chosen, as holy, and as beloved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel and the freedom in Christ that comes with it. Jesus, help us to live and walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received as chosen, as holy, and as beloved of you. Father, help us to be a people that loves well and serves well for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.